1998, Leonardo da Vinci paints one of the greatest pieces of artwork in all history. Maybe certainly the most influential painting there on the wall of the convent. Something that you don't even look at right now. It's not the original that you're seeing, but all the refurbishment and all the, the things that have been doing to, uh, to try to preserve it and to, to try to go back to the original. He was a genius, a mathematician, an artist. Very few people probably in this world can even understand and appreciate the depth of what is in known as the Last Supper. What's interesting, though, is Leonardo has painted this, particularly if you concentrate on the picture of Jesus, he gets it all wrong. You see, Leonardo did what we all do and what's very common in the, in the human species, and that is when you're groping around in the dark for something, what you do is you begin to portray yourself over there. You begin to, to look at things the way you think, the way you look. He painted a man from the Middle Ages. He painted a man that's coming into the Renaissance with long hair, you see. He didn't paint a Jewish man with short hair from the first century, which is exactly what they looked like. Only the Nazarites in the first century had long hair. That distinguished them from all the other men that had short hair. But if you see something long enough, it comes to be true, doesn't it? You can see a shadowy figure in a cloud now and be shown a picture of a man with long hair and a beard, and they say, who is that? Well, that's Jesus. I guess because they say so, and they are always happen to be the experts. It's only frustrating now that we've lost a picture, and maybe uh, we know what he doesn't look like. We don't really know what he looked like. But it's only frustrating to see this, this air perpetuated down through the century. But what's not just frustrating but deadly is when we do it with God himself. In Exodus chapter 32, you'll see there there's an incidence of the golden calf. What did they do with the golden calf? In verse 4, it said, these are thy gods, O Israel. When Aaron said that, he used the word Elohim, which is the same word they used for Jehovah God. It was the same word. And then in verse 5, he said, there's a proclamation we're going to have tomorrow morning, a feast to who? Yahweh, Jehovah. You say, well, wait a minute, something's wrong here. We got a golden calf, we got idolatry going on, and we said God's plural, now they're talking about Jehovah. No, we see, we misunderstand what's happening. The golden calf wasn't necessarily representing polytheism. Not yet, it would have been, but at this very point, The Israelites have turned to something that they're used to. There's something they're comfortable with, something they had learned in Egypt. The God is not in the golden calf, but the golden calf represents God because that's much more comfortable than the smoldering mountain where the devouring fire had come down with all the smoke. Don't you get near it. Don't you touch it or you'll die. And when that happened, for days, They were in fearful prostration to the mountain, and they said, anything that you command us, we will do. They said it several times, but now they've got the golden calf. They would prefer the golden calf. And what is their attitude now? One of merriment, one of dancing, one of timbrels, an orgy in front of their God. God called it corruption. 3,000 would lose their lives. You know, when Jesus came to walk the earth, the same thing happened. You know, it's interesting that we're told that he came to set up a kingdom, and yet he was, he was rejected, so therefore he didn't set up his kingdom. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's 180 degrees out. No, Jesus came to set up his kingdom. He was going to conquer the world. He was going to set up his kingdom, but it wasn't the kingdom they thought. He wasn't the Messiah. He didn't fit their image. Not this man. And so in John 18, 36, he finds himself under 
in front of Pilate, and Pilate's asking him about that very question. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I be not delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Nothing could be very clear. I mean, isn't that harmonized with what he said in Luke 17, 20 and 21, when the Pharisees came to him and asked him, when is the kingdom of God going to appear? Well, the kingdom of God will not appear with observation. Neither will they say, lo, here or there, for the kingdom of God is within you. They didn't want to hear that, did they? No, no, no. You've got some Romans running around. We want to get rid of the Roman yoke. No, we, want, we know what kind of kingdom we're going to have. We know what, who's going to sit on the Davidic throne. We know we're going to get rid of this. We're going we're gonna to rise back up as a nation. That's the king that we're looking for. And now Jesus, going from multitudes following him, and all the, the frenzy and the crescendo of following the Messiah to now standing in front of Pilate alone. He's answering that question about his kingdom. All his Pilate heard was kingdom. Art thou a king then? Jesus' answer is very interesting. He says, thou sayest that I'm a king. All four gospel writers say that. Thou sayest. It's a Hebrew way of saying, yes, it is as you said. I am a king. But he says, thou sayest that I'm a king. But then he goes on to say something that sometimes makes us scratch our head. He says, to this end I've been born. And to this end I have come into the world. That I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And we say, wait a minute. <laughs> He's asking you about being a king, and you're supposed to be talking about that. Now you're talking about truth. Would you lose your mind? You stop? Is it, you just make this break? You just go off a 90-degree angle? No. No, because that is his jurisdiction. That is his kingdom. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free in John 8 and 32. When Jesus came, he was the light of the world. The light was the truth. That's what John says. He's emphasized it through his whole gospel. Jesus is trying to explain to Pilate, it is not as you think, just like it is not out of the Jews. That's why before when he said, sayest thou this of thyself, or did others tell it thee concerning thee? Some people don't even understand what that means. He's saying, do you think the Jews would have had trouble with the king to overthrow your government? You think, that's, you think they would have brought charges on me like that? That would have been your problem, Pilate. But not them, not outside. But they're the ones that brought it up. Does that make sense to you, Pilate? That's what he's saying. And now Pilate hears that. But he knows these answers are not from a guilty man. He knows from envy they have tossed him up. And so then he goes out. He says, what is truth? And then he goes out to the crowd and he says, I find no crime in him. And then he goes on in John's account and says, but you have a custom. That I should deliver one unto you at the Passover. Should I deliver it unto you, the king of the Jews? Let me just note a few things for you in the Gospel of John. Right here, there's a break, and actually, Jesus goes to Herod and comes back. Why did John leave that out? I think it's because he wants you to see there's an incredible contrast with what he's talking about with the kingdom and being quizzed about the kingdom, and then what's about to happen with Barabbas. He wants you to see that there's a choice. And so when he says, do you want me to deliver unto you the king of the Jews? You notice what Pilate calls him, the king of the Jews. You know, God's going to do this with Pilate throughout the whole time. Poor Pilate, he's so ignorant, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. But God's going to use him just like he used Caiaphas. It's expedient that one man die for the, for the country, for the people, so that the, all the nation won't, won't perish. 
Caiaphas doesn't know what he's talking about. Neither did Pilate. But God's using him, isn't he? And you know what you're going to find out about Pilate? He's going to pronounce his truth again and again and again. Do you want me to deliver unto you the king of the Jews? Yes, Pilate, you're right. It was the king of the Jews. And these people said what? Not this man, but Barabbas. And John says, now Barabbas was a robber. Really? Is that what Mark 15, 7 says he was? He was just a robber? Or was he a murderer? Was he an insurrectionist? Did he, leave, did he lead other peoples in a multitude? Barabbas is not the only one down in the Praetorian basement right now under the, the Antonio Fortress. He's, he's being held, but he's a ringleader. He's the one they knew. He's the name. But he's got all kind of people that have been following him, and they've been murdering, and yes, they've been pillaging. Yes, they, but that's what happens, right? ISIS goes through the villages, and here, I want your young men because you guys want to make a difference. You're all, you know, you got grit, fire, you're ready to go. You don't recruit 40- and 50-year-old men. You recruit the young kids, the young boys. That's exactly what's happening in Jerusalem, and it's going to happen again and again and again. And Gamaliel is going to say in Acts chapter 5, he's going to name two more, and they're going to be very successful up to a point. And why is that? Why, wasn't, why, why didn't people look to Ezra and say, are you the Messiah? He's the wrong time frame. He's the wrong tribe. There was no frenzy. There was no expectation. But when John the Baptist begins and he's got all of the following, what happens? Are you the one? Are you him? Because we're waiting. We're expecting. They had the time frame right. And now Barabbas takes, takes advantage of that apparently. He's been going around the countryside killing people. And living off the land, living out of these villages, stealing what he needs, pillaging. And now they have a choice. Do you think it's coincidental that Barabbas is there at the same time Jesus is there? And that there's a choice to be made? Hold that thought. Let me just tell you what I think about Barabbas. Where did he get his name? Did he give it to himself? Did somebody attach it to him? What does it mean? Bar. Son of Abbas, the father. Son of the father. You follow me, we'll throw off the Roman yoke. You follow me, we'll throw these people off. We'll rise up as a nation again. Son of the father, what did he steal? Maybe the Messiah's identity. You think it's coincidental that that's the choice those people had? Either take this Jesus of Nazareth or this insurrectionist. And you know what? God will always make sure you have a choice on what God you're going to follow. The one that you want or the one that is revealed in Scripture. And they said, not this man, but Barabbas. So now Pilate turns him over and says, he took him therefore and scourged Jesus, or took Jesus therefore and scourged him. The next verse there in chapter 19, now in John, John 2, says, Then the soldiers took him, put a crown, plated a crown of thorns, put it on his head, arrayed him with a purple robe. They mocked him, said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. But as we did last quarter in the class, and I want to I beg your indulgence again just to kind of stop and go back to verse 1. And just think about this just for a second. He took Jesus and he scourged him. Is that the way you would have written that if that was your brother, your mom? No details at all. 
We have to look back into history and find out other places where they would take him down into what now is an excavated basement below the Antonia Fortress. And there's a big pillar in the middle of that, and they would take a man and strip his clothes off. Then they would strap his wrist together, and they would bend him over and tie him on the post. Pilate's not there. There's no adult supervision, just a big band of soldiers and one guy called the executioner. You see, it wasn't one of those affairs where they say, well, it's probably your turn today. You want to try this out? And hey, let me, you know, let me try this. Let me just see what I can do there. No, no. They had the executioner. He was a professional because he liked it, because he was good at it, because he had been trained in it. And when he took that cat of nine tails, he was an expert. You see, he knew what we didn't, and that is that there's the sharp, the sharp pot sherds and the, and the pieces of metal that are tied into the leather thongs. That's, that's not nearly as deadly as just the round leaded weights that are at the bottom. Because he knew when you take that and you rear back and you start to bring it down, there's a point where the centrifugal force starts bringing the weight over. That's why weapons are always made with a, a break in it, like a chain and a ball or a nunchuck or something. Then the centrifugal force begins and it begins to pick up speed like a whip. There's a point up here where it's slower. There's a point down here where it's slower, but right there, if you let it just right, it just snaps. No, there's no red mark. It didn't leave a red mark. It split the skin on the first strike. And then you say, well, thank goodness that there's 40 stripes minus one. Oh, really? Who told you that the, Rome, the Roman soldiers cared less about a Jewish custom and a Jewish law? You see, you've already turned him over to the Romans now. He's in their court. He's in their basement. There is no 40 stripes minus one. And you say, well, well, what parameters did he have? Was there some back skin left that hadn't been hit? And then when there's that all where you just can't find any back, he starts down the back of the legs. And then he starts up here on the side. And as he brings the whip around underneath to hit the face, it takes ears and eyes out sometimes. It breaks teeth. It rearranges noses. And you go, well, I've read where... I've read where when they're going to crucify somebody, they just don't do it like that. They kind of lighten up because they want the man to, land, to last on the cross longer. You know, that's true. They, they loved it when somebody lasted two full days just agonizing for every breath. But let me ask you this question. Was Jesus going to be crucified? Was he? Was Pilate going to crucify Jesus at this point? Oh, no. No, he's doing everything he can to get out of it. No, when he, he takes him to scourge him, he's going to do everything he can to satiate the bloodlust of the Jewish mob that's there. And he's going to do everything he can to get out of it. So you say, okay, well, there you go, Scott. See, he, he doesn't really want to take him within an inch of his, you know, because most, a lot of people just died right there on the post. Or if they released him, 
they die within a week. Without modern medicine, can you imagine? Sure. So you say, well, you know what? He, he thought he was innocent. He didn't want to crucify him. He, he believed it. So, so maybe he didn't want to take him to that point. Oh, no, we, mis, we misunderstand Pilate. You know, see, Pilate, he knew Jesus was innocent. He'd care less if he lived. He just doesn't want you, the Jewish population, to force him into the situation that he's in. I don't want anything to do with this. You don't use me that way. In fact, he's going to come back and say, what? You take him and crucify him. You do it. Don't you use me. I despise you Jews. That's Pilate's attitude. He doesn't care if Jesus lives. He just doesn't want to be part of it. And now when he brings him up, he's going to appeal and see if that doesn't make a difference. And he brings him up there. And in verse 5, he's going to say what? Behold the man. What question is he, which question is he answering now? Maybe the question that they had in John 12 and 31 through 34 when, when Jesus was there in front of that population. And he said, now is the judgment of the world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Not, not thousands of years in the future, folks, but now is the time. Why? How, Jesus? What's the context? And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. And he said this, signifying what manner of death he should die. That's what John says in verse 33. It's a parenthetical note, and then in, and then in verse 34, he tells them, He's explaining to them, and yet they don't get it, and so they say what? The multitude answers him and said, We have read or heard that the Christ liveth or abideth forever. How sayest thou that the Son of Man should be lifted up? What is their last question? Who is this Son of Man? Why did they have a hard time understanding it? Why did the apostles have a hard time understanding all that he was saying? Because that wasn't their image of God. That wasn't their image of the Messiah. Who is this son of man? Who are you talking about? You're crazy. And Pilate will bring him up and say, behold the man. Unbeknownst to himself answering that question. I want you to picture if you were Mary's mother right now. We don't know that she was there. But I would imagine she's she's not going to be anywhere else, is she? Did she sleep any at all if she had heard that at midnight or so he is, he's been arrested out of the garden? She's going to go to bed and hope for the best? We know she's there shortly thereafter. I can only imagine she's there now. And what does she think when she sees Jesus? What's the feeling? You know, we could be wrong. We could be wrong. It could be one of hope and elation. You say, what are you talking about? When Jesus left, he had been smacked around. He looked tired, you know. He'd just been up. He'd been questioned. That was, that was her son, Jesus. The man that comes up now doesn't have Jesus' clothes on. He has a purple robe, and he has a crown of thorns, and he can't straighten his legs, and he comes up there, and he's got blood all over him, and his face has been marked And she looks up, and then she says, that's not, oh, that's not my son. I was afraid, that's not my son. 
Right? I mean, we've done this. Doug's done this. He's been in more hospital rooms than any of us. Where you, you, you say goodbye to a good friend on Friday, and then he's in a terrible car accident. So you go on Tuesday to see him, and you walk into the room, and you look over at this. You, that's not George. That's George. No, they said he was in room two. George? Well, Jesus doesn't look anything like he did. Behold the man, but instead of satiating their bloodlust, they begin to cry out for his crucifixion. Pilate can't even understand that. Take him yourselves and crucify him. He wouldn't have stopped him at that point. No, we have a law, and by that law he deserves to die because he made himself the son of God, and now Pilate, it says, is the more afraid. And you go, wait a minute, why? Did he believe in the son of God? Is that, is that what? Why is Pilate the more afraid? He's a pagan. He's an idolater. Does he believe in the deification of men? Oh, yes, he does. Does he believe that there's men that have crossed over into the other world? Oh, yes, he does. Isn't there one sitting on the throne in Rome right now named Tiberius Caesar? Oh, yes, he does. And so now he, he is the more afraid. What have I done? I've just I've stripped the skin off of this guy. He's, you know what? I am determined that if Jesus would have acted like any other criminal, he wouldn't have had any problem at this point. But he knows he's different. He's never got an answer that he thought he would get. And now he's looking at him and he hears this. And now he trembles because he knows. Well, he wasn't an evildoer like they said in the beginning. Well, he wasn't stirring up the people like they said he wasn't. He wasn't forbidding to give tribute to Caesar like they said he was. He wasn't making himself out to be a king and a threat to Caesar. He's already answered all that. None of that is sticking. But now when he says, oh, he made him to be the son of God, that's different. That's different. And so he goes back and he asks him, whence art thou? Did he know he's from Galilee? Did he know he's from Nazareth? Sure he did. He'd already sent him to Herod and back. He knew where he was from. What is he saying? He's like, where are you from? Man, what are you? Jesus answers him what? Nothing. No, Jesus, this is your big chance. Nothing. And you could just feel the frustration of Pilate as it, it begins to kind of boil up. And he's like, you, you don't speak to me? Don't you know that I have the power to release you? I have the power to crucify you. You don't speak to me? And Jesus said something that he's not expecting at all. You would have now no power against me except to be given to you from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto you hath greater sin. Again, Pilate probably can't even imagine. And upon that, he, see, he seeks to release him. He seeks to release him. Now the Jews are done with all their accusations. They're done with all the trumped-up charges. They're done with all the lies. They're going to come down with a, just a bald, naked political power play because they own Pilate. The Sanhedrin has already given him money. The high priest has given him money out of the temple treasury to build the aqueducts of Jerusalem. They've already gone as a contingency to Tiberius. Tiberius didn't even appoint Pilate. He doesn't even like him. He was appointed by Sajanus, and Sajanus has now fallen out with Tiberius. He starts to see he's disloyal. He's looking out here at Pilate, and he's like, you're not even my appointee as a military dictator out there. And every time he has to roll in on a case, he's rolled in on the Jewish side, and he's starting to really distrust this Pilate. And they know that. 
And so they just appeal to that, and they say, if you release this man, thou art not a friend of Caesar. Everybody that makes himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Pilate's had enough. He's going to give in. He can't fight it any longer. He just wants to wash his hands of it and make it go away. And so he comes out to a place that they call the Bema, the judgment seat. It's an official mosaic, Gabbatha. It's a, it's a mosaic floor. Julius Caesar used to carry one around, and it was portable, and they would put it together, and he'd sit down on the judgment seat no matter where he was conquering the world to make the official Roman judgment. And that's exactly what John's referring to. And he sits down, he brings Jesus out, and he says what to the people? Behold your king. Once again, Pilate, speaking for God, behold your king. And they begin to scream out, crucify him. And he says, you want me to crucify your king? Should I crucify your king? And what do they say? In verse 15, we have no king but Caesar. And with that, the Jews lock away the prophecies and the judgment of God that will come back on them like a whirlwind in 70 A.D. He delivers them over to be crucified. It says he delivers them up over them to them to be crucified. In Luke 23, 33, I like the reading. And then when he came to the place that was called the skull, there they crucified him and then just go on. Is that the way you would have written that? If that was your father, was, you would have written that that way? If you were there that day, there's no man that wrote that Bible that's in your lap. No, we want to know how that went with the Quaternion soldiers when Pilate would turn to him and say, go fashion the cross. It was not some big 20-foot monstrosity that you see out there with somebody lifted so high up that would have taken a, a real carpenter and something. No, no, they didn't have time for that and they didn't care. It was crude. It was small. They would smack it together. They built it. And then they would throw it on the ground. The Quaternion soldiers would come over. The Jewish women would come over with the wine and the gall and the myrrhs and narcotic. Here, you suck on this long enough. It'll maybe hallucinate, get you out of your head. Maybe you can endure this a little bit longer. Jesus tastes that, doesn't want any part of it. He wants to feel your pain. But when they put these men down, one would hold and they would put the foot in the armpit and another foot up against his head and neck and he would stretch the arm out and he would fold it down on and the guy would come up with a big old spike and a hammer. They would begin to hammer it into his hands. And when they did that, this, an individual would start snarling and cursing and spitting and trying to bite the foot and try to do everything they could, just cursing out and screaming, except for one who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Sometimes I wonder how, how the leather straps would hold the hands of God or the spikes would hold the hands of God. Now, see, they, they didn't hold the hands of God. I held them there. I held them there. I held him with my rebellion. I held him with lies. I held him with lust. I held him with pride. I held him with a lack of love of fellow man. You held him there. Don't wonder how those spikes could hold the hands of God. You held him there. 
and his love, undying love that said, I want you home with me. That's where you belong. When Mary's looking at that cross standing by it, you can only imagine that she's able to think back and finally she knows. In Luke chapter 2, in 34 and 35, there was a man named Simeon that had came into the temple and he said, and he blessed them and he said to Mary, his mother, behold this child is set forth for the for the falling and the rising in many of Israel, and yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts shall be revealed. Can you imagine how many hours and nights and months and years she kept thinking back to that? What did that mean? What did that mean? And then he began to grow out of that childhood and that little boy stage into the into adolescence and a young man, and she was so proud of him and watching him. But then when he began his ministry, then things began to change. She must have begun to wonder. But now as she's standing right there next to her son on that cross, now she knows. She knows the sword and the piercing of the soul. You think it's a time during the communion to whip out your cell phone? You think this is a time to be distracted by people around you? Can we not discipline ourselves to take ourselves to the foot of the cross once a week? Is it too much? You know, somebody was there and watched the blood and the water come out of his side, and John had been there through the whole bloody thing. Mary apparently doesn't make it to the end. She disappears. But John is there. In John 19 and 35, he said, He that hath seen hath borne witness. And his witness is true, and we know, and he knoweth he saith true, that you also may believe. I saw it. I was there. That's what those words mean. I'm in a special position. I was an eyewitness. And we say today, oh, your witness is strong. You're going to go over there and witness to them? Oh, I'm going to witness. Well, she witnessed to me. I witnessed, witnessed. Oh, really? John's going to say, you got to be kidding me. I smelled it. I was there. I heard it. I heard him trying to breathe. I was afraid. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't give him anything. I had to stand right there. I saw the blood. I saw the water. Jesus said, that's going to be the witness. And every time John uses that in his gospel, it says, it's going to continue to witness. And unless you have a witness that's greater than John standing at the cross, maybe we need to just be quiet. And yet John didn't even believe until he saw the evidence. John 20 and 8, when he looked into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths wrapped up, and he believed on evidence. We say, well, that's a far cry greater than than doubting Thomas. Yeah, that label is just about like Jesus with long hair. We've heard it so much, it's truth, because they, the experts, have said that. Which one of the apostles believed? Which one? No, they didn't. None of them. In fact, John went on after he said he saw the evidence and believed. What did he say in verse 9? For as yet they didn't know the Scripture that he would rise again from the dead. 
And then what did Jesus say in, in Luke 24 and 38? He's upbraiding for their unbelief. In Mark 16 and 14, none of them believed. That's why when Jesus had to walk in the room and they thought they were seeing a ghost, he's like, feel me, touch me. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. And to prove it, he sits down to eat a piece of fish. Thomas just doesn't have the fortune to be there. And demands the same evidence that every one of the apostles did. I think there's somebody greater than the apostles at this point. I think there's somebody that's closer to Jesus, if that be true, than John. I think there's somebody there that we can learn a lesson from that's far greater than a lot of those apostles. When the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head, this person didn't either. Through the whole week, this person was there. And then during the trial, this person was there. During the bloody cross, this person was there. All the way to the end, all the way. Seeing the body taken down where they would have to chisel out the wood because sometimes you just couldn't get the spikes out of the body without mutilating the body. They have excavated chunks of wood with the spikes still in it because it's just easier that way. They saw his body hastily prepared And they saw where the tomb was and where he was laid. And that person comes back before the sun rises on the first day of the week. The first day of the week, a special day from that time for thousands of years to Christians everywhere. Not Saturday night, the first day of the week. And there she looks in the tomb and she sees two angels dressed in white. And their question is, woman, why weepest thou? And I want you to listen to Mary Magdalene. In verse 13, she says, because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. People, she's talking about a corpse. You've been around and rock with the water cooler at school or at work where you didn't want to speak up for Jesus because it just was a little uncomfortable. She's talking about a corpse, a man. They were screaming out for his blood, and she's there, or she's alone, and she says, because they've taken away my Lord. He's dead. She knows that Satan owned her through seven demons until one Jesus came along and freed her and gave her life, and she never left him after that. And even at this point, when she hears the gardener say, woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And then she says, sir, tell me where you've taken him, where you've laid him, and I'll come and take him away. Oh, Mary. She's got a logistical problem, right? But she doesn't have a heart problem. And then she hears one word, Mary. And that's all it took through her anguish through all the tears, through all the, the, the lack of knowledge. It's just Mary, Rabboni, Mary, Rabboni. She runs to him in your Bible, just misfortunately in the English says, don't touch me, I haven't ascended yet. That's not what he said. After some time, who knows how after long, quit clinging to me. I haven't ascended to my father yet. There's time. There's time. But I will be going, go and tell my brethren, and he uses the word for the first time on the apostles, my brethren, that I ascend unto my Father and your Father, my God and your God. 
And Mary goes back with a message and is the first one to preach the consummated gospel. I have seen the Lord. Five words that changed the world. Three in the Greek. I don't know how many Aramaic. We'll, watch, we'll ask Dr. Edwards later. You know, that was an honor that was not for Abraham. That was an honor that wasn't for Joseph. That was an honor that wasn't for Peter. That was an honor that wasn't for John. And it's not the title that says she was the first one to see the resurrected Lord. That's not the honor. No, she was the first that Jesus appeared to, which means it was premeditated. It was a purpose. Can you imagine? The most important event in all time And God does it with Mary Magdalene, a woman of no account, that her witness wouldn't have been worth anything in a court of law in the first century. Is that the way you would have done it? Oh, no. No, and that's not the way we'd have done it. We'd have had him go up on the pinnacle of the temple on the next next feast day and stand up there and say, what do you think about me now? I'd have had him go right back into the Sanhedrin when Caiaphas and Honest were there and walk up and say, the last time you looked at me, you pronounced a judgment. I've got some news for you. That's the way I would have done it. Not in a garden alone. And the other women did the same thing. When they saw Jesus, they didn't dance with timbrels. They fell down and clutched his feet and worshipped him. That's Matthew 28 and 9. Oh, they were touching, all right. They were clutching. They were, they were hugging. When Jesus, before all this, we're in Luke 24, actually, the passage that we read before this happens. I want you to try and tie in this with the thoughts that if you were there that morning and you saw Jesus... You had thought all was lost. But now you're down around his feet, clutching his feet with tears of joy. Was there anything you wouldn't do that he asked you to do? I don't think anybody would say, I I wouldn't do that. But what did he say? He said he wasn't going to tell you what to do, but he was going to leave others to do that. Remember in Luke 24, in 46 through 49, when he's talking to those people, and thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the third day, and that what? Repentance and remission of sins would be preached in his name. To who? To all nations. Where? Beginning from Jerusalem. Who's going to do it? You will be my witnesses, he said to the apostles. How are they going to do that? And behold, I send forth the promise of my Father upon you, but yea... Tarry in the city until you be clothed with power from on high. You read it backwards and it sounds like this. He says, I'm going to give you power because you're going to be my witnesses. I'm not going to preach for myself. I'm not going to witness to myself. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to have the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to start it in Jerusalem. You're going to preach repentance and remission of sins. And when that happens, it's going to be after my death, burial, and resurrection. Is that simple or not? And when does that all come together? 
When Peter used the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16 and 18, when the authority was given to the apostles, Matthew 18 and 18, when he's there preaching on that day and he quotes Joel 2, 28 through 32, he gets to verse 31 and he said, you know what, all those prophecies that David prophesied, he spoke of what? Future kingdoms? No, the resurrection. The Davidic throne, the kingdom, the resurrection. And then he used those keys when he preached repentance and remission of sins in Jesus' name. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for remission of your sins. They did it through the Holy Ghost, the power of God. Jesus said that's all that's going to happen, and yet we've got people right now that just stopped clinging to his feet. I can see it now. Now you just want to dance around the golden calf. That choice is yours. You've got Barabbas, you've got the Messiah. You could either let Jesus be revealed through Scripture or you could follow a God in your own heart. doesn't really matter, but it will matter in the end because everybody's given that choice. And it wouldn't matter unless there were five words that Mary saw something, an empty tomb, and then a live Jesus. She said, I have seen the Lord that gave her life, that gave her future. All would have been not and he would have stayed in the tomb. But there's an empty tomb. There's an empty bone box. You will never see that. Jesus has risen to give you life. It is up to you to clutch to his feet. If you want that relationship where he could call you by first name, Mary, Rabboni, then there's something for you to do this morning. You can come forward as we stand and sing.